So for the first time, we actually have someone called a military judge, and that person, at least in the Army, is actually wearing a judge's robe. Hello, everyone. I am Captain Justin Command, and welcome back to another episode of Fred Talks. Today, we take a glance at a subject that I admittedly knew little about, While the creation of the UCMJ created a revolution of sorts in the handling of military criminal law, in many ways, the Military Justice Act of 1968 created a second revolution. What was that revolution? How does it shape today's practice? As we take a look, you'll appreciate that you can only succeed on the battlefields of tomorrow if you first learn about the battlefields of yesterday. So today, join us as we talk about the Military Justice Act of 1968. Good morning, Mr. Bork. Military Justice Act of 1968. Uh, I admit I missed a lot of days of law school, but I think even if I was 100% present during law school, I'm not sure I would have heard a ton about the Military Justice Act of 1968. So to you, sir, what is it and and, and how did it come about? Well, uh, good morning, one and all. And uh Maybe you haven't heard about it because it's now more than 50 years ago. The act was enacted uh, by Congress in uh, 1968, became effective 1 August 1969. And I've argued for years now that it was a true revolution in military justice. Uh, Not only did it make many changes to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, but it also had a number of unintended consequences that no one really thought about at the time. And I'll talk quickly about those uh, at the end of this Fred talk. So up until World War II, through World War II, the Army uh, had operated under the Articles of War, and the Navy had operated under the rules and regulations for the government of the Navy. Uh, But after World War II, Congress decided that it was time to create a uniform code of military justice, uniform having nothing to do with the uniform that we wear, but rather uniformly applicable to all the services. Remember that there's a brand new Air Force. The Air Force wasn't quite sure what rules it was going to have for courts martial, so Congress said, we'll make this easy. Everyone will operate under the UCMJ. By the time you get to 1968, the war in Vietnam is underway, and many, many civilians are being drafted and serving in Vietnam. And when they come home, they complain vociferously about how unfair the military criminal justice system is. And one of their complaints is that there are no lawyers at special courts. Prior to 1969, when the act became effective, the only time you saw a judge advocate as a prosecutor or a defense counsel was at a general court. And there was also no such thing as a military judge. So what's really significant, uh, Captain Command, is that every single court-martial tried before August 1, 1969 is a panel. 
every single case is a panel. So fast forward to today where 90% of our cases are judge alone, and that's usually what we see. Back in the day, more than 50 years ago, every case is a panel. So um, the prime mover behind the Military Justice Act of 1968 is the Judge Advocate General at the time, uh, Ken Hodson. And Hodson really was a military criminal law specialist. And he probably, of, every, of anyone at that time, was best able to see how to make some changes. So the biggest change was a requirement now that judge advocates be at special courts. And the way they styled the law, it doesn't actually say that there has to be a judge advocate at a special court, but what it said was, if you want to have a bad conduct discharge, you're going to have to have legally qualified counsel. And, and that's a big deal, sir, because if I remember from our metamorphosis of the core discussion, there were tens of thousands of courts martial going on at this time. Yes, in 1969, I think there are more than 50,000 special courts. Uh, and not to be uh, uh, silly about it, but how hard is it to try a special court if you don't have a military judge or any lawyers involved? Um, so the big change is lawyers now at special courts and by the way, that meant a huge increase in the number of judge advocates. The Corps added about 400 judge advocates. Uh, and the second really, really big change is um, a military judge. So for the first time, we actually have someone called a military judge, and that person, at least in the Army, is actually wearing a judge's robe. I was hoping you're going to get to this point. The the development of, of a wearing of a black robe for for a military judge. So there's some significance to that too, as well. Uh, that's exactly right. And at first, there wasn't really this idea that you would wear a black robe. Uh, and for many years, for example, judges in the Marine Corps did not wear robes. But the JAG Corps quickly came around to the recognition that. If you're wearing a robe, then it's not an issue of whether or not you're a captain, judge, or a major, or a lieutenant colonel, or a colonel. You're the judge, and you're in that black robe. Um, by the way, my recollection is at the beginning, uh, we borrowed those robes uh, from the chaplain's department. They were the only ones uh, who had uh, black robes. Um, so... All court-martials were panels. Now we have military judges in charge. Uh, that now means that you can elect for the first time trial by judge alone. It also made it a lot easier to have plea agreements. It was possible before a panel to have a plea agreement with the convening authority, and then that president of the court uh, would know about the plea agreement. But it was a lot easier to do a plea agreement with a military judge and you then had this providency inquiry, which became increasingly complicated. Uh, but nonetheless, within a year, 90% of our courts martial were trial by judge alone. Um, one other big change is prior to 1969, we had boards of review. And now for the first time, these are called by statute the Army Court of Military Review, 
today's ACCA, the Army Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, the other thing that's really important is that uh, early on, we created a special court judge program. And if you were in the advanced course, today's graduate course, it wouldn't at all be unusual for you as a brand new graduate to go out and be a special court judge. Uh, lots of captains, young majors were special court judges, and it really, really worked well because this was a training ground then for people who liked being judges and who did a good job to go be general court-martial judges. Uh, today, where we have fewer than 500 cases a year, we really can't have a special court judge program the way we, we once did, and that's too bad because uh, when you were only trying special courts, you could afford to make mistakes that you really can't make if you're trying a serious case in front of a general court. And sir, do you think that that decline, you know, we've talked about it a bit already, uh, but that decline from 50,000 cases to 500 uh, is a reflection of the Military Justice Act uh, uh, of 1968 and that it it required judge advocates and, and it required attorneys in the process, which necessarily um, potentially slows down or, or, or limits the number of courts martial you see. Yes, I think that that is one of the impacts, the law of unintended consequences. Uh, the first one is, remember that in the days when uh, line officers tried special courts, that meant that if you were a lieutenant, one of your special duties was to be a trial counsel or a defense counsel at a special court. And so in the 60s, uh, officers line officers were very comfortable with how the military justice system worked because they'd practiced at special courts. In fact, it wouldn't be at all unusual in the 80s or even the 90s. You know, Judge, when I was a lieutenant, I tried 50 courts martial. And again, uh, back to the real impetus for the Military Justice Act of 1968, all these complaints about how There'd been command influence at special courts. I didn't get a fair trial. I wasn't represented by legally qualified counsel. All those complaints went away with the Military Justice Act of 1968 when now judge advocates were at special courts. But a big reason in our reduction in courts martial rates has got to be moving away from a draftee, a conscription army, to what we have today, highly professional volunteers who are in the army because they want to be in the army, unlike in the 60s when many soldiers were in the army because they had to be in the army. Thank you, sir, for taking some time today to discuss the Military Justice Act of 1968. And I think the question for the Corps will be whether history repeats itself in many ways as we look at military justice redesign and uh, the idea of moving potentially sexual assault or sexual assault related crimes from uh, commanders to judge advocates. And, and will we see similar themes, even if in a slightly smaller scope, uh, something that I know our core will be looking at. But I appreciate, appreciate your time today, Mr. Bork, and look forward to the next episode. You're very welcome.
interested in providing material to the JAG Corps' future concepts directorate? Reach out to us via Twitter at JAGFCD or LinkedIn or visit our website at tjaglix.army.mil forward slash FCD. That's tjaglcs.army.mil forward slash FCD. We are always on the lookout for the next guest, topic, discussion, or, yes, even the next Fred Talk. As always, the views expressed in this podcast are those of the respective participants and do not represent the official position of the U.S. Army or the United States government. You can only succeed on the battlefields of tomorrow if you first learn about the battlefields of yesterday. So thank you for joining us today. For the JAG Corps Future Concepts Directorate, I am Captain Justin Command. We'll catch you on the next episode of Fred Talks. <laughs>